morning. My name is Alison Talley and I serve on our missions team here at Grace Community Church. And today we have a great privilege and honour to have with us Roy and Margaret Lytle, who have served in Suriname for 43 years. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and uh, we're just so blessed to be able to have them as part of our um, body here today. And so we welcome you. And um, I'm going to just spend a few minutes just asking them some questions so that you can get to know them a little more. Um, Roy and Margaret are with World Team Missions and um, have been down there for a long time. So let us know, what are a few of the highlights, some of the things that um, are vivid memories for you of your time in Suriname? 43 years is a lot of highlights, but... uh uh, I, I think one of the highlights really for me was after years of being the teacher, ministering to the people week in and week out, day in and day out, they had services every day of the week, but uh, was to be able to sit down in the congregation myself when one of the Indian leaders stood up to preach God's word and blew me away with God's word. Uh, I just sat there with my mouth open uh, at what was coming out of his mouth. And I, I asked him later, I said, where did you get that? I didn't teach you that. He said, it was the Spirit of God led me to this passage of his word, and he, this is what he led me to share. And so you see the maturity taking place in the lives of the people as they're responding to the leading of the Spirit of God. And to me, that was a tremendous highlight. That's what it's all about. They don't need us there. They're, they have the Spirit of God. They're able to do that. You're the vessels that shared Christ with them, and the Spirit of God is moving through them. Amen. That's right. Well, what is your new role now? You currently live in St. Cloud, Florida, and you're still linked very strongly with Suriname and the work that's going on there. But, Margaret, maybe you can share with us just a little bit about what your new role is. Okay. Uh, we're kind of in the what you call watch care with the mission uh, world team, and but we figured that we could do what we're doing down there. We could do it here in the States now, and we're getting older. We're having more aches and pains, so we need to see a doctor here once in a while. But most of all, I want to see my grandchildren watch them grow up too. And so since we knew that we could do what we're, we're doing down there, Roy is preparing. Mostly he's doing most of the preparing. I help him a little bit, uh, sort of. And <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, he is preparing materials on going biblical studies. We didn't finish what, what we wanted to do down there, but he can do that, take it back. And then uh, Marco and Marlene Skirmans, who is the new couple that took our place from Holland, um, he is very technical, and he is putting it on video. So all, everything that's being done now is being video, put on CDs, and it's going from all the villages, which we're pretty excited about it. And one accomplishment that got done was, won't take too long, but it was a concordance, um, which was, it took nine years between my coworker, Jane Blind and I, and we got that concordance done for the people. It looks like, you know what a Strong's concordance looks like? It's three volumes like that uh, when we got done. And um, I, I just felt it, it, it was the top of the hat for me to be able to leave that behind, and we taught it to the people how to use it. We had to teach them the whole alphabet and from the beginning and everything. And, um, but to see them look up the verse, uh, they know the verse in their head, but they don't know where to find it. And when they found it, uh, you just saw the hope. 
the countenance. It just all lit up. It was, it was worth it all. What an amazing gift to leave with them there, for them to be able to use day by day. Yeah. That is so awesome. Well, Roy has been back to Suriname just recently with our very own Ted McKinney, and we were praying for Ted while he was there and Roy. And um, Roy, I want to ask you, what are some, what's a difference that you saw in the people and the work down there now as opposed to when you first went there 43 years ago? I want to thank you, by the way, for sharing Ted with us, sending Ted down. We had a great time of team teaching together. And um, it's just the response of the people to God's Word. It's God's Word. That's what we emphasize, God's Word, not what we necessarily have to say about it or who we are as people, but it's God's Word. Get God's Word into their heart, and the Spirit of God takes that. Uh, in the early days, of course, when we talk about Jesus or about God, they had no, no concept of who Jesus was or is, and it just went over their head. And now they're getting deeper and deeper into the Word of God and now having tools like a concordance and having the Bible in their language now from the Old Testament to the New Testament where they can study it themselves. And then just to see them coming with excitement in their heart as they found this passage or they found that thing to minister to their needs. They struggle with a lot of things just like you and I do here. And then to see the answer in God's Word. This is the answer. Apply this to your life, and this will impact you, and it will change your life and impact others. And to see them taking God's Word and loving it and living in it and then now trying to live out of God's Word, it's fantastic. That is awesome. And one of the exciting developments that's been taking place recently is that the believers in Suriname are desiring to be formally recognized as a church and so Roy has been working with them on uh, writing up documents and a constitution and bylaws and talking about their purpose and all that. That has to bring so much joy to your hearts to see the development take place in these believers that they so want to be recognized as a, as a church. Right. In the early days, even up until now, really we haven't placed a lot of emphasis on church membership. We want to see them come to receive the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior, know the joy of having their sins forgiven, and being a part of a body, but there was never a formal push for church membership. But they recognize the need of that as others are coming in from the outside now uh, to have the recognition of being a church in the village back in the jungles. And so studying the Constitution and the bylaws, you get into the nitty-gritty of being a part of the member, of being a member of the body of Christ. And uh, it's been a great study for them to be able to look at the qualifications of membership, what makes you a member of the body of Christ, and then the responsibilities that go with being a member. And uh, just putting a whole new light on their walk with the Lord, uh, and again, uh, not just as an individual, but as a part of a body, as a part of a membership. And uh, they're right now, they're going over all of these things that I had the opportunity of teaching back in August. And when we go back in uh, February or March of next year, we'll pick that up again. And then we want to present those documents to the government. But to see them being a part of this working of, of, uh, of making this Constitution and these bylaws that define who they are as believers there in the jungles of Suriname. It's, it takes them to another level in their walk with the Lord. It's a great thing. 
Well, we all know too that whether we're here in Anger, North Carolina, or whether we're in the jungles of Suriname, that there are challenges facing us as believers. And so, Roy, would you like to share with us perhaps one of the major challenges facing the believers there in the jungles of Suriname right now? Well, I think it's just everyday living in the midst of sin. We live in a sinful world. Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And uh, even though they've been isolated uh, 200 miles or more back in the jungle, isolated from the rest of the population, that isolation is breaking down, is falling apart. More and more people are coming in. And with that are things that they bring in from the outside, drugs. They're starting to face drugs now in the jungles. And sometimes they're even bringing drugs up from Brazil uh, taking them with mules, uh, as they call them, up through Suriname to get them to the coast where they can ship them to the U.S. or other places. But drugs are a real problem that the young people are facing. Um, the problem of strong drink is a very real problem, and that's been almost from day one. That's nothing new. But uh, they have their own strong drink that they make out of a root, and it gets to be very powerful, and drinking is an is a, is a issue that they struggle with. But I think drugs, and then uh, as they're going out to the city, they're being exposed to so much more than what they ever were back in the jungles, and they're in real life now. I mean, they're just being bombarded by things that you and I have seen for many, many years. It's fairly new to them. And how do they apply the Word of God to the things that they're now coming in contact with, and how do they make that choice of what's right and what's wrong? Uh, it's a daily thing for them. But the drugs and the strong drink uh, and how that's impacting families, uh, husband-wife relationships and things like that, it's mm -hmm. a challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, we are so grateful for you and for your service to the Lord and for what you have given up and invested in the kingdom. And um, we're going to move into a time of prayer, praying for Roy and Margaret. Um, just uh, one other thing I want to share is that there's a this really excites me that the, the folk that they have shared with, some of the believers there and the leaders in the different tribes that they have worked with have such a heart for evangelism and they are seeking to go and reach um, an unreached people group who are many weeks, not hours, but weeks journey by foot and canoe to be able to share Christ with people who have never heard of him before and so that's a an amazing uh thing to look to think about and to for you to as you've invested in these folks to know that they are now investing in others and sharing christ with those who've never heard the name of jesus so let's uh let's pray and um i invite you to if you would look at your bulletin through the week we have various prayer requests listed there we celebrate with brad and casey cornwall on the birth of their Fourth child, a little baby boy, Keller. Um, Jason Woodall is recovering from um, from a chainsaw accident, so we want to lift him up. And um, <clears throat> Trudy Terryberry's mum, who is um, recovering also. Various various folk here. Um, Cindy Newton too, who's awaiting further surgery. So if you would just um, look through your bulletin and the prayer requests there and. Uh, be praying for those through the week and lifting those needs up before the Lord. That would be great. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you so much for the opportunity to share Jesus with others. And whether it be here in America or whether it be in the jungles of Suriname, Lord, it just gives
gives great delight to you to see people come to know you. And Lord, I want to thank you for the faithful service of Roy and Margaret Lytle over these 43 years and continuing service as they love and pour into these folk that you have called them to. Thank you for the believers there in the jungles, Lord, as they seek to share what they have come to know of you with others that have never heard the name of Jesus. God, I pray you would go before these tribes, Lord, that for the leaders of these tribes as they walk um, many weeks by foot and canoe in order to share the life-changing message of Jesus with others. Father, remind us of the treasure that you have given us in Christ. And may you be on our lips throughout the week that we too may be sharing Jesus with others. And Father, as we come to give now in our offering, our tithes and our offerings, Lord, I pray that you would be blessed and honored as we give of that which you have given to us. We praise you and we thank you for who you are, for your love for us, for meeting our needs. Help us to be able to continue your work through the giving that we offer up to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, welcome one more time uh, to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace. And if this is your first time, we are delighted to have you. Uh, if it's your second time or whatever number of time, we're delighted that you're here as well. It's just good to be in the house of the Lord, especially on a week like we have just had. This has been an eventful week in our nation. If you pay enough attention to the news and if you are in possession of a certain personality, you might consider the events of this past week to be alarming from the wild fluctuations of the stock market and more and more people talking about serious economic issues to come. But there's always somebody talking about that, right? But it's been wild fluctuations in the stock market. The city of Houston demanded that pastors hand over messages that may have had anything to, to say that would be in opposition to the mayor's positions. Ultimately, it came down to the pastors preaching about the issue of homosexuality, same-sex marriages. Um, and even though it's ridiculous, it won't get anywhere, it's, it's the first salvo, and they are going to continue. And maybe if you've paid attention, there is around-the-clock coverage of Ebola, which may well become far more frightening in days ahead. It may never be full-blown here, but if it is, frightening will be one of the milder terms that we will use. Except that believers don't have to live in a state of panic. And that's why we come to church on Sunday mornings. To remember that we don't have to live that way. Now that you're beginning to feel that fear rise in your throats. <laughs> I mean, we, we do live that way, of course. But much of that is due to our settling into this land of plenty and this life of ease that marks the experience that most of us have, have had. Now, look, you may say, my life's not been so easy, and I agree with you. But with the expectation of ease that we have accompanied with new homes and new cars and enough trips to Disneyland and the State Fair to validate our hopes... 
Well, we have it pretty good here when you think about it. No more polio. Plenty of whole foods if we want them. And if we want them badly enough, we will find ways to afford them. Retirement accounts. Refrigerators, for goodness sake. Air conditioning. And stop me when I've said enough. The ability to pay for almost any service that we used to do for ourselves. Enough money to buy gasoline to to take a picnic somewhere so that we don't have to pay for a meal at one of the 100 restaurants in a 10-mile radius. Novocaine for root canals. <laughs> Anesthesia for surgeries that extend ways, extend life in ways unimaginable just 50 years ago. If we were living 50 years ago, some of you wouldn't be here. You know it. You've had those kind of surgeries. So how did the writers of the New Testament and the early church respond when crises confronted them? They acknowledged God's sovereignty. They prayed that he would watch over them and and their brothers and sisters who were in crisis, and they preached the gospel. That's what they did. Since the time of Christ, when epidemics and plagues visited villages and nations, Christians have often been the ones to take care of the sick and the dying. You ought to talk to Professor Wallace about that sometime. He, he knows a lot about the plagues of the Middle Ages and, 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 uh, and, and the medical crises and the ways that believers would come alongside of those who were sick and dying. And God delivered every single Christian from catching the diseases, right? Nope. A lot of them died. I'm not suggesting that you unnecessarily put yourself in harm's way if Ebola comes to our area. But when Ann Coulter says that the doctors from Samaritan's Purse and other ministry-related services were selfish and going, not thinking about their families, not thinking about when they went to help people with this horrible disease, She just doesn't know Scripture to say something like that. And even though we should never, especially in our country where we have so many medical facilities, don't ever put yourself unnecessarily in harm's way. But if an epidemic comes to us, and I honestly, I don't think this one will. I don't. 70% death rate in developing nations for people who contract it, 70%. I don't think it gets here this way, but if it does, and when it does, it's sooner or later. I mean, we're always just barely staying ahead of pathogens, right? They're trying to kill us, and then we figure it out, or it runs its course, and then it moves on. If that day ever comes, we may well be called to serve others. That's how Christians, that's how Christianity exploded in the first century. They did things that nobody else would do. But what about my family? Well, there is that in the 21st century, isn't there? I personally, again, just don't think it's coming. But that may simply be denial in the same way that many are given the sensationalism with regard to any potential medical 
catastrophe. How are we to respond? We're called to trust the sovereignty of God, to pray for those in need, and to pray for protection for our families. We are to do that, and we're to preach the gospel. And in a time of crisis, people are far more willing to listen to the gospel than not. So crisis may be opportunity. If we, live, if we belong to the kingdom of God, we're okay. But, no, we're okay. God's in charge. That's one of the things Job couldn't figure out, you know, that God's in charge. He didn't, he didn't quite understand what was going on. It's to our benefit that we understand him. So it's appropriate we find ourselves in a study about suffering with this week's uh, events fresh on our minds. If I were to ask you, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I might just put one over here and like one over there and then just walk over and, you know, have a little chat with this side and then come over. If, if I were to ask you, what is your favorite book of the Bible? It's just... It's interesting. Let's just see. Genesis. Who would say Genesis is your favorite book of the Bible? Romans. Anybody for Romans? How about um, the Gospel of John? Uh, how about Psalms? Okay, that's a lot of you, but most of you are older. See, that's the deal about Psalms. Um, if you're young, you may really love the Psalms, but it's probably not where you're heading for nourishment and comfort. If you've experienced enough suffering, regardless of your age, you may be young and you've experienced suffering, then Psalms may be a lifeline for you. It's my privilege as a pastor to often point people to the comfort that is readily available in the Psalms. I did that a few months ago. I was speaking with Shelley Willis on the phone. Her dad was in ICU down in Florida. She was down there. It was a difficult time. She had stepped out of the ICU to talk with me on the phone. And I asked her how her father was doing. She said he was pretty discouraged. And who wouldn't be? I mean, here's a relatively active man all of his life. And now he's lying in a hospital bed. He doesn't know if he's getting out or not. And even if he does, life will never be the same. It it comes to that, that place for all of us. I went to the Psalms to a verse, in fact, that I've often shared with other people who were struggling. Psalm 94, 19. What, what a beautiful verse this is. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. That's a great verse, isn't it? Um, I said, Shelly, do you think you can remember that? She said, yeah, I got it. I got it. A few minutes later, uh, she texted and said, when we read Psalm forty nine nineteen, I didn't think it was the right one. It's uh, forty nine nineteen. His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. <laughs> I have permission to share this today. Is Shelly? Where is Shelly? Are you here, Shelly? There she. Uh, she was. I wanted her to be here when I shared it, but. Uh, Man, uh, so it's important to get your reference right, okay? Man, she said that they had a good laugh with that. Don't you love a family with a good sense of humor? Hey, a sense of humor will help you greatly in suffering. It it truly will. Uh, There's not much humor going around, just biting sarcasm between Job and his friends. If it's your first Sunday, you'll have discerned that 
<laughs> our church is in the study in the book of Job. Actually, the, the study encompasses more than, than the suffering that is in Job. It's, uh, it's a study, it's a broader study on suffering. Uh, our time in Job is limited, and the texts that we consider are, are just sort of representations of a much larger body of work within Job concerning the various topics that we're going to contemplate. Last week, we talked about the ways that Job's friends just judged him. They made judgments about him and said, we know what your problem is, it's sin. Today, we're talking about defensiveness, Job's defensiveness in his response to them and in his posture toward God. You know, he's looking into the heavens and saying, why God? Now, he says a lot of right things about God, but so do his friends. They say a lot of right things about God, but they've got it ultimately all mixed up. The the deeper I get into this study, the more fascinating it is. I can't wait till we get towards the end and, and, and we tie it all together. Next week, we're going to see as his friends just heap condemnation on him. How do you respond when people judge you? As we read about last week with Eliphaz and Bildad, both implying and directly stating that he had some sin for which God was judging him. When people judge either your actions or your motives, do you listen and say, wow, go ahead, please share that. That's something I really, I would love to hear what you think about that. I need to know these things. Or do you automatically become defensive? If you do, some people are going to point to your defensiveness as having hit a sore spot and see there, "Mm -hmm, I was right about you all along. But but what about when you're right in what you've done or or people are accusing you of, of, of actions or attitudes that you had nothing to do? I know you were the one. I know you were the one that went to the boss about this. And you're like, no. Had nothing to, yeah, right, whatever. What about when, when they say that you're suffering because of a sin? Not many people are going to say that today. Maybe they would. Or, or you don't have enough faith, or um, you don't have enough faith to believe that God will heal you, um, or <laughs> you're just not handling this well. You need to get a hold of yourself. What about then? What if you are utterly innocent of the things about which you are charged? What then? We're going to see how Job responded. Then we're going to think about how we should respond to the harsh words of those who are both brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are outside of the church. Because of the nature of the reading this morning, I'm going to ask you to remain seated. We're going to be looking, we're going to be moving from one place to another in the book of Job. Job, again, as a representation of all that's going on. Um, let's pray before we do jump in, though. Father, uh, we do ask that you would bless this look at your word. I pray that you would cause the truths of how the word responds to some of the unfounded accusations that are in the book of Job. Um, May those truths that help us gain perspective and understanding of about of ways that you want us to respond, may those truths burn deep into our hearts. Open our hearts 
make us responsive, receptive and responsive in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we look at, at, at some of Job's comments in which he defends himself, it's important to recognize that Job did not consider himself sinless, only blameless with regard to the accusations against him. He says, I am blameless over and over. He says that. And he doesn't mean I'm sinless. He means I, I, I'm, I'm not guilty of what you're accusing me of. Um, some secret sin of my wealth being ill-gotten or of mistreating the poor. Job 13, 26 and then 14, 15 to 7. Speaking to God, Job says, For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. I know, God, that I have sinned. In my youth, I did some really stupid things. Am I now paying for those? Then in chapter 14, Job says, if things were as they should be, then God, you would call and I would answer you and you would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. You wouldn't be watching for every little thing to punish me. Listen, this is a beautiful place of redemption Job is longing for. It's the kind of forgiveness that we have in Christ. This book is so closely connected with the sufferings of Christ and and the benefits that we have because of Jesus' suffering on our behalf. My transgressions would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. You wouldn't be pulling them back. You know how we do with people, don't you? Yeah, I remember what you did 15 years ago. Oh, I haven't forgotten that. Uh-uh. Then in chapter 14, um, actually, no, we just did that. In Job 6, our brother begins to answer his friend's accusation. Look at verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Eliphaz has just laid him out, and he says, Really? This is what you're doing? Don't you understand? I need kindness from you and you're doing the exact opposite. You forsake the fear of the Almighty. You have no fear of God to talk to me this way. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. Where they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Job asked his friends, can you just support me, please? I need you, and and you're attacking me. Then in verse 24, teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. In other words, say something worth hearing, and I'll listen. This is a pretty, you know, Sharp jab that Job sends back. Uh, I am blameless, he says in 921, Job 921. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. I am blameless. I will die proclaiming my innocence. And in chapter 12, then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. I know the system as well as you do. Serve God and he will bless you. 
cross God and he will punish you. But you know what? I've observed, haven't you seen this? doesn't always work that way. The wicked prosper. Bad things happen to good people. Even nature seems unfair. Well, it would if you're low enough on the food chain, it would. In chapter 13, Job answers his critics, insult for insult. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. That's very defensive, isn't it? I mean, we get that. Who made you king of the world? You know? Excuse me, professor. Teach me something. But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. In other words, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Job's just hitting them strong. Now, later in chapter 13, Job contends with God quite boldly, though at first he's speaking with his friends. He's speaking rather boldly to his friends. Then he turns to the Lord, and he uses a little more reverence. But, but still, there's this defensiveness, like, well, what is up with this anyway? He's like, shut up. What are you doing this for? You know, what have I done? Shut up. You know, it's like back and forth. Let's begin in verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Here's what's going on here. Here's a beautiful verse, tons of them in in Job. And we sing songs about him, and we use these verses all the time. The original context often is not as pretty as the verse, you know, the way that we use it. But it's okay. These are here for our benefit. And Job is moving towards something. And, and, and he is articulating the truth that will be explained later. But he's doing it in his frustration. He, verse 15, he's essentially saying, you know what? God's going to kill me. I know he is. I know I'm going to die. But I need to have a talk with him. I've got to get some answers. I cannot take the silence. I cannot take this misunderstanding. I need answers from God. And though he slay me, I'm going to hope in him anyway. I know he's right in whatever he does, but I I just need something. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. In other words, if he lets me speak, he doesn't consider me godless. This is my hope. I I haven't done anything wrong here, and I think I I can gain a standing with him. Keep listening to my words, he says to his friends, and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Now Job begins to address the Lord. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me. And let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you 
reply to me. Lord, please talk to me. Verse 23, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me to know the transgression in my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? Lord, what have I done? Please tell me. Now, we'll think about this a lot more in detail later, but just for for right now, consider this. In the end, God rebukes Job's friends for speaking wrongly about him. And he rebukes Job for questioning him. But he tells Eliphaz that Job had spoken rightly about him. That's interesting. Because you may want to go there. I'm not uh-uh. I'm not going there. I'm not going to talk to God that way. Furthermore, God does not rebuke Job for speaking to his friends the way that he did. Was Job wrong to address his friends with such sarcasm and vitriol? I don't know. I mean, off the top, I'd I'd say probably. Although we all know it. There's some really great lines here if you want to use them, you know. (laughs) There are a lot more coming too, boy. I mean, he says some great things. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But you know what? Since God doesn't rebuke him, I'm reluctant to accuse him. I'll have to let the Lord work all of that out. The New Testament seems to encourage us on this side of the cross not to engage in verbal jousting, either with believers or unbelievers. Now, there's a limit with believers. You know, when people want to tell you that Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he almost certainly is talking about, you know, when somebody comes up to you, smacks you, turn the other cheek, say, okay, now take it this way. He's got to be talking about those outside the church because he also says if, if your enemy compels you to go a mile, go two with him. Roman soldiers could walk up to Jews and say, hey, Jew, carry my, my bag for a mile. And they would go and believe you me, Jews knew exactly what a mile was or whatever the measurement was they were using. And, and then, okay, Jew, your time is done. He said, no, no, I'll go another mile. That's to unbelievers. If somebody in the church smacks you, the elders need to have a talk with that person. We got to, truly, that's the way it works. Something's going on. We need to address this because brothers are not supposed to function with one another like this, brothers and sisters. But Peter tells us, Love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3, 4, bear with one another. Forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. Over and over, we're told to put up with things that, you know, that are, that are minor in nature. Just don't make something out of everything. It's one of the things that bothers me a little bit about accountability groups. People begin to sit as judges. All right, what have you done this week? Hmm, you better get straightened up on that. There are things that we need to be accountable to one another. Guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Women, you should know what I'm talking about as well. We have areas, areas that are difficulty 
it, 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 that guys have with the flesh, women have maybe different kinds of issues with the flesh. But we all need somebody to help us with that. But I'm not crazy about accountability groups of people. You don't know people. Look, the body of Christ is designed. We're to, we're to help each other like that. I shouldn't have gone there because now I'm going to try to explain it and I can't. God bless your accountability groups. So we're called to forbear with one another. And with our enemies, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the cross, we are commanded to be silent on the basis of the cross. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23 speaks about how we are to handle unjust suffering. And this really is connected all the way to back, back to verse 18, and it goes beyond this, but just plucking it out of the middle. For to this you have been called. He was talking about servants who had slaves, who had unjust masters, people who just beat them for no reason, no good reason. And he says, for this, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus got right in his suffering what Job didn't. Now, look, Jesus was very direct with his opponents before it came time to suffer. In his suffering, and this is what the New Testament points us to over and over. Like a sheep, he was silent before his shearers. He did not protest. When it came upon him and he was called to accept his suffering, he did. It's beautiful encouragement, is it not? I mean, every day, every day most of us want to defend ourselves, whether we do or not. We do it in our minds. We're defending ourselves in our minds. I mean, every day someone is saying something about us, to us, in front of us, behind our backs, something that we feel questions our character, our rights, our position, our spirituality. And sometimes we're not in a position to respond, say like to a boss. But sometimes we are in a position to respond when we should keep quiet. It's not enough, according to 1 Peter, to keep from responding verbally in a defensive manner. But in our hearts we are called to trust the Lord. Rather than feeling the need to always defend ourselves. It's impossible. To love others. As we should. When we're always in defense mode. Look. You look up defensive. In the top ten dictionaries. You'll find my picture right there. I'm the, po- I'm the poster child. I mean, I'm, I'm bringing insecurities from my youth. I would have been voted least likely to succeed at anything in high school. And you think I'm kidding? You find somebody that knew me back then. You think I'm kidding? I bring those insecurities into adulthood. It's difficult. 
And the Lord tells me, just be quiet. Like Jesus. Just let it go. There are times when we should defend ourselves. But many, many times when we feel defensive, there is no need. It's never a bad thing to be put in a position where you have to be humble. Humiliation is kind of a choice that we make. I'm humiliated. Well, why? Because of my pride. When you're called to be humble, you're in good company. You're in good company with someone who didn't open his mouth to defend himself, but he entrusted his soul to the one who judges justly. Christ died for us. And the call is always for us to trust him. Typically in this series, I finish these messages on Job in the New Testament to bring a greater understanding, a fuller perspective on our suffering to bear. But today I want us to close by Psalm 31, and you're going to think we're in the New Testament. There is gospel dripping from this psalm. It is saturated in the gospel. It's a grace-filled, trusting heart looking to Yahweh for affirmation and vindication. Jeremiah, Jonah, Jesus were all moved to quote Psalm 31, and you will have no trouble recognizing Jesus' quote when we come to it. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. David, the author of this psalm, is in trouble. And he immediately appeals to the Lord for help. But he, he doesn't just appeal to the Lord. He appeals to the Lord's righteousness, God's righteousness, not his own. Does this feel different from Job? I am blameless. I will die defending my innocence. Now now look, God doesn't, doesn't rebuke him for saying that. And again, when it comes to the end, we see it in Christ. It's, it's amazing. But David has a better perspective. He lives probably a thousand years past Job. And he understands that anything good in his life comes from God and that he deserves nothing but Sheol or death. Hell, away from God for eternity. And he says, Lord, I take refuge in you. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. He knew his only hope was the Lord. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. This comes up over and over in Scripture when you look fairly closely. I talked about it some yesterday morning in men's prayer breakfast. Uh, Let's always remember, this is God's story, not ours. And we get to be a part of it. And, And it's a great relationship that we have. But David is saying, for your name's sake, you lead me and you guide me. 
You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. That familiar? Jesus' last words on the cross, you have redeemed me. That's quite interesting. Redemption wrapped up right there with that ultimate expression of trust. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus' betrayal by Judah, Judas, not Judah. (laughs) Jesus' betrayal by Judas and apparent abandonment by his father constituted the most unfair death in the world, in the history of the world from the human perspective. From God's perspective and in his plan, it is beautiful beyond imagination. If David could throw all of his trust on the Lord when he was so often unjustly pursued, And if Jesus could put his full trust in the Father when the heavens were silent and brooding, so can we. Verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. (laughs) You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Even if you think God doesn't see your suffering, he does. He will deliver you. And then you may go right back into the pit. Look, this great place of deliverance. And then verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Now, there are two bouts that David has here. And and the question is, is there parallelism here? Is he just repeating it, restating this suffering? It, 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 It has the feel of just life. You get through one and everything's good. And then you're before you know it, you turn around. Oh, I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also for my life is spent with sorrow. And my years with sighing feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David acknowledges his sin. A fair amount of our suffering is a result of our sin, isn't it? Even defensiveness, even that sense that I've got to defend myself, that's sin, not trusting the Lord. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Boy, don't you hate it when it's like that, you know, when everybody's talking and you walk in and it's just kind of quiet, you know, goes quiet. And people see you like, hey, 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 yeah, well, got to go. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many. Where am I? I'm lost. 13. For I hear the whispering of many. Terror on every side. As they scheme together against me. As they plot to take my life. David's circumstance is different obviously from 
from Job, but lots of similarities here. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. This is a beautiful verse. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. So David has many enemies who are whispering against him, just like Job's detractors. But they will not have the last word. Satan will not have the last word against you. We've seen in Job, your detractors, your accusers will not have the last word against you. You've sinned, yes. But it's God who's going to deal with you, not others. David has an intimate relationship with the Lord, and he acknowledges that he is a temporary, he is in a temporary state. But God is eternal. My times are in your hands. One aspect of relational suffering that has to be acknowledged is that someone cannot truly hurt you unless you love him or her. I mean, someone may cause your life to just go all to pieces and and, and, but as far as an, a, a, a person hurting you, how hurt do you, how deeply hurt do you think Job was? Do you think he had come to the aid of his brothers in years gone by? Eliphaz and Bildad Shuhite, shortest man in the Bible, remember? And Zophar, he had come to them in help and now he needs them. And they're just, they're awful. He's deeply hurt. Twice in David's life, with King Saul and then later with his own son Absalom, people that David loved dearly not only turned on him, they tried to kill him. I mean, hopefully no one has tried to kill you. But if you have lived long enough, it's likely that someone you have trusted with all of your heart has betrayed you. Why does does God allow that? He doesn't say. But here's what he's trying to teach you. I know the Lord is teaching me something. Yeah, here's what it is. You ready? Trust him. That's what he's going to tell Job in so many words. (laughs) It's tough coming from God to Job. And sometimes it's tough for us. Lord, I know this is not right. I know it's not your will for this to happen, for that to happen, for these people to say this, to split up. It's not, these things are not right. Why? Trust me. That's the answer. The lesson is not to never trust people again that that's not that's a bad way to live you know if you say okay fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me i'm never going to trust people again and we all are that way at some point you know where we say okay look i've I've been burned and i'm not i'm not going there you can't live that way it's a miserable pathetic life if that's the way you live I, i didn't call you pathetic now don't i'm just saying I understand. I've been there. It's a pathetic way to live. So it's the lesson is not to never trust people again, but the lesson is to always 
trust God. Always trust Him. No matter what happens in our nation, in our land, in our families, in my life, always trust God. When you don't trust God, you'll spend yourself defending yourself against every accusation or criticism or disagreement that anybody has with you. That's all. That's what it's going to be all the time. Let the Lord take care of those who do you wrong. Isn't that the, isn't that the word in the New Testament? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's Old Testament, actually, and it's New Testament, too. I will repay. And don't live your life saying, all right, God, I can't wait for you to get old so-and-so. Just let him take care of that. That's above your pay grade to, to make those calls. Stand together and read the rest of this psalm with me, if you would. Let's read it out loud together. And we'll say Sheol in verse 17, okay? (laughs) Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercies when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All of you who wait for the Lord. This last verse would better be translated. Be strong and he will give you courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Don't expect an end to troubles. But expect the strength to meet those troubles in Jesus. What a great day. What a great day for Roy and Margaret Lytle to be with us. They'll be out front. Speak to them, please before you leave. Closing, I just want to read a few words from another psalm. Uh, The psalms are indeed a place of great comfort. and um, This is a psalm that means a lot to me, Psalm 51. I'm going to read just a few verses from that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me, but against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I pray that we will go this week living as forgiven and know that we are forgiven and share that news with others. Go in peace this week.